So looking at the, the fear this week, it's not just in the world, it's also in the church. It's, it's everywhere. First of all, we should know that what fear does to the human body. Fear allows your body or signals your body that there's danger. And so it, your brain then recognizes danger, perhaps in the newscast, perhaps in the tone of voice of the anchor man or anchor woman who is announcing the seriousness of what's happening. And you pick this up. So your brain then will, your pituitary gland is going to secrete adrenocorticotropic hormone, a hormone that's going to affect your adrenal glands and push out cortisol and adrenaline. Your heart rate's going to speed up a bit. But the dangerous part of this is the cortisol, because cortisol is an immunosuppressant. It suppresses your immune system. What do we need to fight colds and flus and viruses? We need our immune system healthy. So the combination of bathing your mind and your emotions in fear, the chances that you will get something is going to be higher. It's just the way it works. What I feared has come upon me. Who said that? Job. What I feared has come upon me. We got to be careful. We must be careful what we think, what we feast our minds on, and of course, most importantly, what we say. What we say. When God created Adam, he gave him dominion. Basically, he said, whatever you say goes. When Jesus was resurrected, died for our sins, basically, he said a lot of the same things. You can speak to the mountain and it will move. Whatever you bind will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will be loosed. He's talking about how much power your words have. What I find is that most of us use our words very lightly. In fact, we use them to get sympathy. Oh, it's probably coming my way. Oh, who knows? You know, it looks serious. I don't know. Oh, it's going to be bad. And we share those things, and we talked about this in an earlier class. It's called emotional contagion. The mo emotion of negativity then sweeps through us and our, our families, and it spreads like a virus. We have to be very careful what we say. So back to Psalm 91. I think we should actually read it in class today. I'm going to read in the ESV. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So the things that are going to follow, that the psalmist is going to say, are predicated upon the fact that you are in the shelter of the Most High, and that you are abiding in the shadow of the Almighty. You can't really claim the rest of these things if that's not true about you. And you might even want to say, I dwell in the shelter of the Most High, and I abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I'm going to try to personalize this psalm the way I did for myself this week, and I'm hoping that you will be able to do it as well. 
If we can't do it here, I don't know where we should be able to do it. So let's personalize this psalm for ourselves. Let's say it together. I dwell in the shelter of the Most High, and I abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Let's say that. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Can you start feeling some encouragement rising? Now here is the first where it mentions pestilence. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. Let's say it personalizing it. He will deliver me from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. Amen. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. So his pinions are wings. That's another word for wings. Let's say that together. He will cover me. He will cover me with his pinions. Under his wings I will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. A buckler is a small shield. Let's say that together. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror by night, nor the arrow that flies by day. But I will not fear the terror by night, nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Let's just start it again. I will not fear the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Let's personalize that. A thousand may fall at my side, or ten thousand at my right hand, but it will not come near me. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. I will only look with my eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Let's personalize that. Because I have made the Lord my dwelling place, the Most High my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to attack me. No plague come near my tent. For he will command his angels concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. For he will command his angel just concerning me to guard me in all my ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. On their hands they will bear me up, lest I strike my foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. It's going to pause right there because the lion, we know the, the lion roaring, seeking whom he may devour. A lion is a symbol of what? Yes, the enemy, Satan, your enemy. And we know that you are supposed to, you are in Christ, and Christ, Satan is under his feet. And we're in Christ, and that is our position now. We are seated with him in heavenly places. 
By the way, the serpent is also a symbol of Satan, evil, the devil. Yes. So let's, uh, we're going to personalize this. I will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent I will trample underfoot. My favorite part of this psalm. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. Because I hold fast to him in love, he will deliver me. He will protect me because I know his name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. When I call to God, he will answer me. He will be with me in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. He will rescue me and honor me. With long life, he will satisfy me and show me his salvation. Amen. Lord, we thank you for Psalm 91. We thank you that you promised three times in this to protect us from the deadly pestilence and that we do not have to fear if we dwell in the shelter of the Most High and if we abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Amen. I speak health to everyone here. Amen. I feel better. I hope some of you do as well. To speak about fear specifically today, I'm going to go to the New Testament. I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. Should be a very familiar story to everyone. I love familiar stories, and I like to look at things about that story that you may not have seen. You don't have to agree with me, I've, uh, as I've said a number of times, but it should at least challenge your thinking and get you to say, what do I believe about this story? Reading from the ESV, I'm in Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, that would be about 3 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, 
saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Beautiful story, familiar story. Most of us have seen the artist's rendition of this story. Raise your hand if you've seen an artist's rendition of Peter's facing Jesus. He's starting to sink. He's got his hand up like this. Okay, most of us. I'm not sure it happened that way. A picture is worth a thousand words, so it changes the way we think about a passage. But this passage that I read said, So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Doesn't say he was as he was walking, he was almost to Jesus. It says he came to Jesus. Hmm, let's think about that. Now, we could look at the Greek and it could be he went to Jesus or he came to Jesus. There are some possibilities for interpretation there. But I'm going to challenge you to think, as I do in this class, what is the best fit? What makes the most sense to you? And I'm going to tell you, obviously, what makes the most sense to me. Peter, first of all, there are a number of reasons why he wants to get out of the boat. They've just finished feeding the 5,000. And one of the things that Jesus said to the disciples before he fed the 5,000 was very interesting. He said, you feed them, didn't he? Remember that? Well, where are we going to get the money? He said, you feed them. They did nothing, and Jesus fed them. So Peter has watched this, and he says, I'm not going to miss out again. If there's something that the master is doing, and I'm his disciple, I'm going to make sure I do it. There he was walking on the water, and Peter's thinking, I want to do that. He's not going to miss out again. He says, if it's you, tell me to come to you. Jesus says, come. Peter gets out of the boat. He starts walking on the water. Now, as we have walking on the water, some of you have thought about this. Maybe some of you haven't. Walking on water... Most of us would think it was a smooth surface. Was it a smooth surface that night? Clearly not. Was the structure that was supporting Peter actually in the water or was it beneath the water? In other words, were the waves actually washing over his ankles or was he jumping up over each wave because it's all solid? Probably never thought about that. It's the kind of stuff I think about. We want to be looking at the passage as what is really happening here. Where is the power supporting Peter? Where is it coming from? There is, a, there is a force under Peter. It says he came to Jesus. My take on this is when he got out of the boat, he's looking at the water, clearly, as he gets out of the boat. But the next thing he's going to do, as many of us have done if when we're children, He's looking up, he's looking down, he's looking up, he's looking down. He is, he's actually keeping his focus as soon as he's questioning, oh, 
Jesus. 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 Okay. It says he came to Jesus. He, he arrived. I think the problem started after he arrived. We know something about Peter. We actually know something about all of the disciples. Every time they got together, what was the question they were always discussing? Who was the greatest? Peter is going to now turn around to see. He's going to see the boat. Is anyone rowing the boat? Nobody's rowing the boat. Probably Peter was rowing the boat. I don't think Matthew, the tax collector, was rowing the boat. No, doesn't fit. Doesn't fit well for me. Peter, James, John, the fishermen were probably rowing the boat. Peter was probably rowing, which is why he was so awake and willing to, to jump out. He gets out. He starts going. Now he's at Jesus. But now he turns around and he sees, he still has this power under him. He sees these people looking at him. But the wind is blowing. So what's happening to the boat? Which way is it going? Is it going forward anymore? It's actually going backwards. He's watching the boat be pushed by the wind. Notice it says, when he saw the wind, well, you can't actually see the wind. He must have seen the effects of the wind, which would have been the boat moving backwards. He just spent a lot of energy exerting himself, trying to get the boat to move forward. Now he sees it moving away from him, going backwards. With everyone standing there, their mouths open, amazed at what is happening to him. And that's when he also looks down. What color is the sea at 3 a.m.? Black. Maybe the moon, maybe some white-capped waves, we don't know, but it, it's black. He's looking at the effects of the wind, which is interesting to me. The point I want to bring up today is that with Jesus right next to you, fear has such incredible power. It says also, Peter beginning to sink, beginning to sink. If you step off the side of a boat, do you begin to sink? So it sounds to me as if Peter was sort of slowly sinking, as if this force was eroding a bit. Whatever force was supporting him, it, was, it didn't immediately vanish. It just started getting weaker, just a bit weaker. So he now is moving downward. The force, the power of fear being arm's length from Jesus is substantial. It can negate the power of God. That's what we need to know today. The power of fear, with Jesus standing next to you, with the power of God supporting you, it will erode that power. I don't want that in my life. That's why I'm reading Psalm 91. That's why I'm reminding myself, who is God? Who am I? 
and what promises am I standing on? When I wake up in the morning, I used to ask my wife, how'd you sleep? How do you feel? Kind of a cultural thing. We do that to people. Oh, how are you? How do you? Well, I got a little back pain this morning. Didn't sleep so well. Well, I don't know. One out of four days, you may get a negative response. And I've realized that I need to take that out of the equation of my life and our marriage. Why would I even want to introduce a question that could, could potentially be answered in a negative way and start her saying something negative just as she's getting out of bed? Be careful what we say. Let's be careful what we say. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So the questions I ask her now, what do I say? I don't just ignore her in the morning. I say, who is God for you today? You just read something in Psalm 91. My refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. My shield, my rock, my redeemer. The scriptures are full of names for God. And when you run out of names for God from the scriptures, we have precedence and we can think of new names for God. God is my banner. God, the Lord, my provider. The Lord, my healer. The God who helps me with the computer. The God who helps me make gluten-free, sugar-free cookies yesterday. The God who helps my recipes work out. The God who helps my wife knit. Who is God for you? You can name him specifically, and it's part of this personal relationship we're trying to establish so that when we get fearful, we have something to hold on to. You can say the God who delivers me from virus. The God who takes care of my finances. He's our father. He's responsible. He wants to be responsible. And many of us have had that changed in our minds. Many of us have started thinking inappropriately about God that somehow we are responsible because the world, especially if you're in medicine, everyone wants to make you responsible. The lawyers want you to be responsible, the administration, the patients. Somehow it's a graceless society and you learn that you're responsible. Not in the kingdom of God, actually. You are able to make mistakes, and you're able to be forgiven for those. By the way, the next class, the next hour, we're going to talk about forgiveness, because that's one of the blocks to hearing from God. So, Back to our story of Peter. What's that? Oh, my wife's reminding me. So the questions we ask, I ask, generally, we have three, three questions in the morning. Who is God? Who are you? Many of us just forget who we are. I think Peter might have forgotten who he was. We were in the David story, we can see that David, pretty soon after this chapter, is going to forget who he is. He's going to start lying. He's going to start running. Have you forgotten who you are this week? I'm his beloved son in whom he's well pleased. Can you say that about yourself? In fact, maybe we should stop now and do a bit of a pause. And let's, let's just ask God, here's your, here's your question. Who is he for you right now, this day, this week? God, who are you for me?
what name of God do you want to use for him? And you can write them down or remember them. I'm going to give you a minute of silence now. It's just very important to do some business with God. A lot of internal turmoil in many of us this week, and we are going to change that. That's why you're here. Who is God? And then I want you to, to say, who are you? Not how you feel. According to scripture, who are you? Seated with Christ in heavenly places. You are his beloved. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. There are some different verses you can use to substantiate who you are. It's not how you feel. And we're going to get away from our fear and our panic. And I'll just introduce the third question that we often ask is what promise of God are you standing on? Who is God? Who are you? What promise of God are you standing on? I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a good one. My God will supply all my needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Well, that's a very good one. Anyone have some needs this week? Anyone wondering if their need supply may be diminishing? He'll supply, oh, my God is going to supply all my needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So we're going to, we're going to spend a minute thinking about those three questions. Who is God? Who are you? And what promise of God are you standing on this week?